0: Thank you. While you're being seated, you can go ahead and turn to uh, the book of Romans, chapter 3. Hold your spot there, Romans chapter 3. We are continuing in our series that we started a few weeks ago. This is week number 3, as uh, Adam alluded to earlier, in a series called The Big Story. So, what we've been aiming to do through this series is, is just in a very concise way to try to summarize the Bible, right? That's kind of an overwhelming thought in a lot of ways. But we're summarizing 66 books, uh, uh, hundreds of chapters of Scripture, try to bring that down and uh, just summarize it in four simple parts. That, that, that's the whole premise, right? The big story. What is the big story of the Bible? And I want to say that this is a great way as well. If you were if a little bit overwhelmed by sharing your faith, and when you think about, you know what, if somebody asked me what I believe or what is the kind of the bedrock of my life, or or tell me the story of Jesus, if you're overwhelmed by what to say about that, this is a great little template to keep in mind. So uh, this this series, The Big Story, also helps you to tell the big story whenever you're in conversation with other people, and, and that conversation's uh, conversation turns toward spiritual things or, or or the gospel message, and so four simple acts, four simple parts, and we started with this a couple of weeks ago with creation and, and how God has created. We, we moved into Act two, which was the fall that we covered last week today we 're going to cover Act three, which is redemption, and then next sunday we 're going to cover Act four, that final piece that is restoration and so in some ways, you can kind of look at it this way if you want to put different verbiage to it, different wording to it, you can say that Act one is when we were made. That, that that's that's the story of how we were made act 2 is the story of where we became broken for us as mankind and for us as people individually as well. Act three is when that brokenness was paid for. It's what we're looking at today. And then act four, you can kind of say is when we were fixed. The whole issue was fixed, or even better than that, it was replaced. And that's what we're going to unpack again next Sunday. And so moving through the big story and uh, making our way through, this is where the news begins to become good. If you were here last Sunday, and a lot of you were, uh, at the end of that message, I mean, that, 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 that's where the story is the darkest, is, is when we get to the end of act two where we're in genesis chapter three and sin has entered into god's creation and and god created he created everything good uh he created it very good he created for six days kind of the crowning achievement of his creation was mankind and and, uh the bible tells us in genesis one and two how he created us He, he created adam from the dust of the earth he created eve from one of his ribs from his side all of that is literal all of that is historical it's not mythological it's not figurative it is historical fact right that the bible tells us these things and And then, in, in spite of all that, God also chose to create us in his own image. We're image bearers of God, every one of us. Every life is precious. Every life is valuable. It doesn't matter how old, how young. It doesn't matter how healthy or unhealthy. It doesn't matter what the life experiences have been. It doesn't even matter what the life choices are, right? When we talk about the value of human life, it makes a huge difference what choices we make. And our choices have a lot to do with whether we're walking in fellowship with God or in rebellion against God. But the choices a person makes doesn't divide value the fact that they are still created in the image of God and that Jesus chose to die for them. And so, so much is wrapped up in our creation. But Act 2, as we look at last Sunday shows that all of us have sinned, every single one of us. And it's not just an issue that Adam and Eve just blew it, and what were you thinking, I can't wait to see them when I get to heaven, and like, I'm going to find Adam. You know, it's not like that, right? Because all of us, given the chance, have also committed our own sins. And had we been the ones in the garden, we would have made the same choice that Adam made, that Eve made as well. And so ever since their sin, we have this, this sin nature. And we're not born in relationship with God. No one can rightly say, I have always been a Christian. No one can say that and it be accurate because all of us have experienced what it's like to be broken and to be outside of fellowship with God. All of us have experienced what it's like to be in rebellion against God. That's why we need a Savior. And so last Sunday what we looked at was the effect of that sin. That Adam and Eve have sinned that that has trickled down to us. We're all born with a sin nature. We don't have to be taught how to do what's wrong. That comes naturally. We have to be taught how to do what's right, right? And and, and we ultimately are going to suffer the consequences of sin. And everywhere you look in our own individual lives, whether you look on the inside or whether you look out there, what we see is brokenness. We see guilt and we see shame and and, and we see uh, the effects of the fall all around us with with evil happening in life, suffering that invades our lives. All of that are those are effects of the fall, the effects of sin. They're not God's fault, right? We can't shake our hand and say, God, why, why did, why did you do this? The suffering that's in our world, God, why did you, uh, uh, you know, allow this evil to run rampant? And yes, God does allow it, but it doesn't mean that it's His fault. God is going to address the evil, and he has. He's going to address the suffering, and he has. And one day he's going to make it all right, but for now he allows it to run its course, but he does not leave us alone. And so we come to Act 3, and that's where we begin to look at this whole concept of Redemption, going back to the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, and when they took of the fruit, it wasn't about the fruit; it was about the command that God had given. And when God gave the command not to eat of this specific tree in the garden, and they chose to disobey and to rebel against God. In the midst of that choice, they could have decided to either obey or disobey, to honor God, to dishonor God, right? To 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 walk in a closeness to the Lord, or to reject and to push Him away. They made the wrong choice. And when sin came, in a sense, God had a choice, right? Because God had a decision to make, not as though this caught him off guard. He's God. He knows everything before it even happens. But God had a decision to make, so to speak, in that he had to decide, am I going to now, just as a result of this sin, am I just going to wipe out Adam and Eve, this man, this woman that I've created, and just kind of rid myself of them and start all over and do things differently? right, That was an option on the table. Or would God choose to just let mankind go their own way and suffer the consequences of sin for all of eternity with no hope whatsoever? And certainly God could have said, you know what? This is what man deserves. I gave them a command. They disobeyed me blatantly to my face. They chose another option. They chose plan B, not my plan A. And now they deserve the consequences of that sin. God could have made that choice and say, you know what? You're gonna be left in this state for all of eternity, broken and separated from me. Or, God could make the, make the choice, choose the option of paying for the sin, paying for the brokenness, and then ultimately resolving it, not only immediately, but also ultimately in the end as well. That's the choice that God made. That's the choice that we call redemption. It was God choosing not to start over. It was God choosing not to leave man in our state where we were broken and separated for all of eternity, but it was the option of, I'm going to pay for this myself, and I'm going to resolve it, and I'm going to remedy it. That's Act Three, redemption. Act Four, restoration in the big story. And so today we talk about Act Three. Redemption. So, so what is the definition of redemption? I, I, I found this online. This, this kind of helps. I like definitions right? because it helps, to, helps us to understand what we're talking through here. Redemption is simply uh, the act of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. Now, that is not necessarily the, the, the spiritual definition, even though it applies. This is just the standard definition of the word redemption when it means to be what it means to be redeemed it means the act of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for that's crucial in exchange for the payment or the clearing of a debt that is what redemption is and when we begin to then lay that over the bible's understanding of redemption it fits perfectly there's not necessarily a different bible definition of what redemption means there's a different application of it But it is exactly this when we when we talk about redemption, when we sing about redemption being redeemed, like we just did, it is the act of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for the payment or the clearing of a debt. That's what it means to ultimately be redeemed. So let's look at a couple of passages of scripture. We're going to look at quite a few this morning before we get to Romans chapter three, uh, which, which kind of to me I think pulls it all together but John chapter 8 look over in John chapter 8 if you'd like if you if you prefer you can look at the screen behind me John chapter 8 Jesus is speaking here and he's going to talk about this whole concept of redemption John chapter 8 look down in verse 34 and verse um, through verse 36 so Jesus is in conversation with some of the religious leaders. It says in verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Let's pause right there. Because remember, the definition of redemption is clearing a debt. It is uh, it, it is making payment for a debt. What Jesus says here is this whole concept that when a person has sinned, we've already established this from last Sunday, Act 2, the fall. All of us have fallen. All of us have sinned. Romans three twenty three. 23. That, that in the, as a result of, a, of our sin, of the fall, we are now in a position of slavery to sin. And that is exactly what it sounds like. Sin masters us. We are under the control of sin without a savior. Jesus would would point to this. He says in verse 34 that everyone who sins is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever, verse 36. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So he's talking about this understanding He's setting the stage for what redemption is. That that Before we talk about redemption, we have to understand that we are in slavery to sin. We are are in bondage to sin without Christ. We are broken on the inside. We are separated from God. uh, And we are in need of someone rescuing us, making payment on our behalf to clear the debt and to make us right with God. So if you have a family member, if you have a friend, if you have a coworker, or even if you yourself, if you've never come to that place where you've called on the name of Jesus to forgive you and to take over your life, this is the setting of your life. If you've never made that choice, you are under the, pay, or, or the, the, the penalty of sin. God's wrath is over you. You are in a position of slavery without freedom. That's the picture that Jesus himself paints. Look over in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Paul writes, and he expands this a little bit. He talks about how we find freedom. Look at the words that he uses in verse 7, Ephesians chapter 1. He says, In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption. There's that word, the paying of our debt, the reestablishing of a relationship. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So we're starting to piece together. We're putting together like little detectives, right? We're putting together uh, what, what redemption truly looks like. It, it's necessary because we're in slavery to sin. Sin is the big issue. Act two, the fall. Act three, redemption is God paying for that sin debt. It's God paying for our freedom and it tells us that it comes through Jesus. In him we have redemption (laughs) through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. So some of you may be thinking, so why is this even a deal anyway? I mean, why couldn't, I mean, this is God we're talking about. Act one, remember Brooks, creation? I mean, he says the word seven times, Genesis one and two, and, and things are created. Why couldn't he just say, forgiven, 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 and everything be right? I mean, this is God. I mean, he sets the rules, right? Why couldn't he, why couldn't he just do it this way? He, th- this, is, this is the nature, this is the nature of, of sin, and this is, the na- th- this is God's nature, right? We have to remember. God's nature is one that he is just and he is holy. And he's not just just, he's infinitely just. We don't see that in this world. And he is infinitely holy. We don't see that in this world outside of who God is. And because of his infinite justice and his infinite holiness as eternal God, Right? Who is the ruler of all? Because of those qualities, he must judge sin for what it is. The nature of sin is that it is directly opposed to everything that God is. It's not just, it's unjust, it's not holy, it's evil. That's what sin is, right? And so God has to judge sin for what it is. I mentioned this last Sunday. If we look if if we were to watch some big uh, dramatic court case on television. We've had one recently in our area. There's been umpteen thousands of them it seems like in the last 20 years since Court TV came on the air whenever that was. You can sit and watch all these court cases. If you saw a judge that that had all the evidence laid out in front of him or her and, and all of the evidence pointed to the guilt of the person on trial, and yet that judge, for whatever reason, whether it's because, well, I'm related to them, or, well, it's because they paid me a lot of money, or for whatever reason, if they just denied the evidence and chose in the face of, of overwhelming evidence, they chose to just sweep the crime under the rug or just act as though it never happened, you would say that judge is unjust and you would say that judge is wicked. That's why God could not just sweep sin under the rug and just say, by by his word, forgiven, right? Sin by its nature has to be paid for because God's holiness and God's justice require that. It has to be paid for. Look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 3, just one chapter over from where we were in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 2, verse 3, Paul is writing, speaking of the life without Jesus, he says, among them we too all formerly lived. Remember, he's writing to a group of Christians here. So he's looking at their past. He says, we used to walk just the same as all those without Christ, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh. Why? Because we were slaves to sin. Right? We, we, were, we could not even resist sin. Indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Why would Paul use this language? It's not because he's painting this picture of God up in heaven with his arms crossed, always angry at everybody. That's not the picture. Again, it's the nature. He's holy and he's just. He's infinitely holy, infinitely. He's infinitely just, and he has to judge sin. And when it speaks of God's wrath, that is the right response of a holy God to sin it's wrath. That's why Easter is such a horrendous scene outside of the resurrection, outside of what was accomplished there when Jesus purchased our redemption. The events that unfolded on that first Easter, right, when, he was, when Jesus was, was crucified was horrendous. Why? Because that was God's wrath being poured out on Jesus for our sin. It, 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 was, it was him taking the hit for us. Because his, God's justice and God's holiness require that. Uh, it's something we, we have to understand. Otherwise, Easter just becomes this this another Bible story. And we get new clothes and we dye eggs and we hide them and we go look for them. And, and we have prizes and we cook a little extra better lunch that day. And we invite, invite family and friends. It, it's so much more than that. It was, it was God's wrath being satisfied that we deserve and it was... Jesus standing in the gap for every single solitary one of us, regardless of the continent we live on, regardless of the life experiences we've had, regardless of the decisions that we've ever made, it was him standing in the gap for every single human in history, us included. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 here, that we were by nature children of wrath. Now, there were ways throughout biblical history that God would deal with the payment of man's sin. We go back to Genesis chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. But in Genesis chapter 3, again, I alluded to this last Sunday. It's hard not to go back to what I preached the past week or the past two weeks because this is the big story, right? All four acts are intertwined. I talked about this last Sunday. The setting is the garden. The two key players are Adam and Eve. God has given the command not to eat of a certain fruit of the tree that's in the center of the garden. They rebel, they sin. They immediately begin hiding from God, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, one of the saddest verses in the Bible. They cover themselves with fig leaves. They're trying to hide their, their shame, their guilt. It's the, it's the entrance of shame and guilt that comes right here, Genesis 3, first that we see of these demonstrated in the Bible. We've been dealing with that ever since. But it's in verse 21, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And as I mentioned last Sunday, for the first time, Adam and Eve saw death. They'd never witnessed death before. We don't know how long they were in the garden before they sinned, but they'd never seen death. This was a place of perfection until moments before, whenever they had sinned. Death was not part of the picture. Death came because of sin. Romans chapter 5 tells us that. Death was a byproduct of sin. It was a direct result of sin. And there they are in the garden, and, and, and God is slaying an animal. We don't know what type of animal it, te- it doesn't tell us. And this, this is not a sacrifice in the sense of the sacrificial system that I'm about to talk about here in just a moment. It doesn't say that this was part of the sacrificial system. That hasn't been implemented yet till we get further into the Old Testament. But in a way, you could say that there in the garden, at the outset of sin that God is choosing to cover it by a sacrifice. Maybe, maybe a lamb. You move a little further into Old Testament history, really only one book over to the in the Old Testament to the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 12, we find that Israel is literally in bondage. They're in slavery. They are living in Egypt. They're not honored guests. They're slaves. They're being oppressed. They're being beat down. They're crying out to God to remedy this and to set them free. And in Exodus, if you remember the story, Moses comes before Pharaoh with nine different plagues that God performs, and Pharaoh won't listen. His heart was hardened. And then finally, the tenth plague was what would spin out of that would be Passover, And God would give very specific details to the people of God, the people of Israel in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, for example, read along with me and take a look at what it says. It says, speak to all the congregation, the Lord says to Moses and Aaron. He says, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts, and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Look over verse 12 and verse 13. He says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so God gives these instructions. Adam and Eve now are in the past. This is now, uh, pop- the population has grown. God has now a congregation of people that he's called to himself, the people of Israel. They're under bondage and slavery, living literally in Egypt as slaves. And now God decides to set them free. He decides to rescue them. And what redemption looks like is a sacrifice that's to be all Offered, and it's a lamb for a family. Remember, God killed a, an animal in the garden. It was like a, a like a sacrifice in a sense for a person, for Adam, for Eve. Now it's a sacrifice for a family. He gives them instructions. You take this lamb and you shed the blood and you put the blood over the doorposts of your home and that is going to be the pathway, so to speak, of redemption for you. You will be covered, you will be protected. Israel would grow, they would be set free, they'd move into the promised land. You move into the book of Leviticus, a book that has taken the faithfulness and the many uh, uh, a many, uh, New Year's resolution of a lot of people. You get to Leviticus. Leviticus and it's like I can't go any further. And Leviticus has claimed a lot of people who had good intentions of reading through the Bible in a year, but there's a lot of good there. Leviticus chapter 16. Look at what it says in verse 29 and verse 30. Now Israel is larger. Again, they're living in the land of uh, the Promised Land. He says, "This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day." That atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. This would be the day of atonement. There was a sacrifice for the individual. There was a sacrifice for a family. Now this is like a sacrifice, somewhat of a lamb, for a nation, Where one day a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would first begin by offering a sacrifice for himself and for his family. Why is that? Because he was an ordinary person as well who also had sin that needed to be covered. And after offering a sacrifice for himself, he would then go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer a sacrifice for the people's sins. And it was interesting. He would offer offer the sacrifice, typically, uh, well, it would be a goat. And then there would be this second goat you can read of in Leviticus where the hands would be placed on the head of the goat and the goat would be sent off into the wilderness. The scapegoat, right? Symbolizing that the sins of the people were being carried away. It was such a visual, powerful visual. And yet in the midst of that, again, the very next year, they would have to do the whole thing over again. Because the sins weren't being paid for and removed forever, they were being sort of covered for a season. Until you get to the New Testament. In John chapter 1, verse 29, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, and knowing the backstory now, he looks at Jesus and maybe he points and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, Imagine for every Jew who heard that statement. Imagine where their mind would go. The Lamb of God, who what? Read it for yourself. Who takes away, not covers for a season. Those garments in the garden would wear out. That Passover would cover sin for a season. That Day of Atonement would require another day a year later. But now I uh, would come a Lamb of God, John the Baptist would say, who takes away as far as the east is from the west. Psalms would tell us who takes away the sin not of a person not of a family not of a nation but of the whole entire world right this th- this would be redemption at its finest, Colossians chapter 1, it paints this beautiful picture, this, 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 a, a very visual picture, the, the imagery that comes to mind, the way Paul writes Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. He says, for he, Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All of that is the picture of Act 3, redemption, of why it's necessary, why it was required, and what it costs. It wasn't God just saying, poof, you're forgiven. Let's just act like nothing really ever happened. It was God saying, I know what you did. You know what you did. You sinned against me, and now I'm going to take it upon myself to pay it for you. Creation, we were made. The fall, we were broken. Redemption, it was paid for. There's a principle there. In redemption, Jesus fills two roles. He fills the role of priest, and he fills the role of sacrifice. The priest who would stand between people and God, Jesus would fill that role perfectly. Not having to offer a sacrifice for himself in advance like the high priest would, Because he is God and he was perfect when he walked this earth. But he also fills the role as as sacrifice. Not just the priest, the mediator between man and God, sinful man and holy God, but also the sacrifice that was offered, that paid for sin. That's why Christmas is so significant. That's why the incarnation is so significant, because when Jesus came, he walked this earth perfectly God, perfectly man. As perfect God, he was the perfect sacrifice, holy and spotless and without blemish, and as 100% man, he was the perfect substitute in our place. Not a bull, not a goat, not a lamb, a person like us in our place. 100% God as sacrifice. 100 God as substitute. That's what Jesus accomplished. And in our redemption, he fills both of these roles of mediator, of priest, and then also sacrifice. Perfect in both of those settings. He's on the cross. You remember the story there, and he's hanging, paying for the sins of you and me and the whole entire world. And if you remember there, but uh, the time is getting away. We won't go to the passage, but but there, as he hangs there, you remember he cries out from the cross, and just before he dies. And by the way, he was calling the shots on the cross, not the Roman government, and it certainly wasn't the enemy. He was in firm control on the cross. That it says he gave up his spirit. What did he cry before he died? He says, "It is finished. It period is period finished period." Exclamation point. And what was he referring to? This whole setting, right, of creation, and Colossians tells us that Jesus was a part of that creation as God, by, uh, he has created all things, by him all things have been created. Colossians tells us he, he was a part of that, that when creation was brought into existence and when mankind fell, all through those years when sacrifices were, were offered, year after year after year, Jesus, the Son of God, perfect in all, all that he was when he walked this earth, stands there or hangs there on the cross and he cries out, it is finished, meaning the whole system is paid for. And the sin debt that you carried has been ransomed. To the point to where you don't have to stay apart from God forever. You don't have to languish in your brokenness for your whole life. You don't have to carry that stinking guilt and that stinking shame through every day of your life. And you don't have to live your life in regret of what happened back there In those college days or those single days or on that business trip or that season where God wasn't even on the map for you, you can leave all that behind because the God who made you stands ready to wipe the slate clean by a Savior who came to pay for it in a way that you and I couldn't possibly have paid. He did it (laughs) for us. Romans chapter 3, we close with this passage. It it is such an incredibly powerful passage of Scripture. It's easy to get lost in this passage, but I just want to talk it through as I read it, and we're just about done. Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, let's pick up in verse 21. Paul says, but now apart from the law, the Old Testament law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, the the law, the Old Testament, all pointed to the righteousness of God that would be revealed. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there's no distinction, all have sinned. And all fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, and that word simply means to be declared not guilty, being justified as a gift. By his grace, how does this happen? Accidentally? No, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He pays for us to be declared not guilty. Verse 25, let's speak of Jesus for a second, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. There's a $2 word. What does that mean? It just simply means that the payment that Jesus offered on the cross, when he said it is finished, the Father said, that's right. Good with me. I accept that payment. God displayed him publicly as a proper payment, as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, a God of all grace who would do this for us, fallen man, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Remember, he put them off year after year, covering them with a sacrifice offered by the high priest. Verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be just. Hey, look at there. There's that word again. He's a just God. His justice has been satisfied. And that he would also be the justifier. Oh, not of everybody, automatically, but of the one who has faith in Jesus. Principle number two, Jesus offers redemption to anyone And everyone, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, he offers redemption to you and me and everybody else in history. And it doesn't come because we say, you know what, I think I'm going to start getting in church a little more regularly. And it doesn't come because we say, you know what, I think I'm going to put a little something in the plate next week. And it doesn't come because we say, you know what, I'm going to clean up my language. I'm going to straighten out my weekends. And, you know, I'm going to change this. I'm going to change it. No, no. It doesn't come because of those things. It comes because we choose to place our faith in Jesus. And that faith is not just an intellectual, oh, okay, finally I get it. Now I believe in you. Now I'm go live my life the way I want. No, when it speaks of placing our faith in Christ, it's talking about surrender. I surrender all. Lord, I finally get it, and I finally see why I need you. And the only right response I now understand is to turn from my sin and to give it all up to you, Jesus, who paid for it in full. And if you've never done that, I want you to listen very carefully. Don't wait to Easter to get this right, because eternity hangs in the balance. Why not right now where you sit today, this moment, Pray a prayer like this that says, Lord Jesus, I have blown it and I have sinned. And today I believe you are God and you died and rose to pay for it. And I invite you to forgive me and take over in your name. Amen. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Lord, I pray for those today that have never made that simple decision simple in regards to it's a decision that a, a child can get right but Lord it runs so deep that we can never fully grasp that you a perfect God would choose to pay for our sins for us but God we thank you that you created us in your image and you've put us in a beautiful place even though so stained by sin your world is a beautiful place but God, the picture became incredibly dark at the end of Act 2, the fall. and sin and brokenness is separated from you in a world that is filled with suffering and evil that sometimes invades our own lives. God, we thank you for Act three, redemption in the big story, that looking down from heaven, it didn't catch you off guard. you knew the, the lamb was slain from the foundations of the world. You knew, And this is even more mind-boggling. You knew what it would cost you when you created us in the first place. And you made us anyway. And Lord, you offer redemption and a fresh start and a brand new heart as we're going to look at next Sunday. A brand new life in Christ. But to have that, we have to lay down our sin that has created so much chaos and havoc already for us. And we have to place our faith in Jesus. God, for those that have never done that, Lord, I pray that right where they sit, they will. And God, when they do, I pray that that you'd begin to grow them in that new relationship, that you'd begin to grow them and mature them in their new faith. God, we just thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you for redemption. Thank you that you took the cost, you took the hit. Jesus, you did it willingly, not forcibly. So God, help us now in turn as those who've been redeemed to live our lives to your glory, to the glory of the message of the gospel. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.